morning everyone. Hope you're all doing okay. This morning we're reading from John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. I am the Good Shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the sheep, is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Amen. Good morning everyone. It's uh, great to be back with you this Sunday morning. I um, hope you enjoyed Trevor's reading. Um, of John chapter 10. Such a great chapter we're going to be jumping into today that I hope um, you uh, enjoyed the context of a few sheep in the background as Trevor was reading today. Also a bit of a shout out to the downards in our church as well who I know are, uh, could teach us a thing or two about sheep. Um, uh, so a sort of sheepish shout out to them uh, today. Uh, hopefully you see what I did there. And um, also to say, if we have any other sheep lovers in Portadown, it would be great to know that. Um, we could like maybe even do something on Facebook or Instagram, could we, over the, over the afternoon? Anybody that's got any sheep, just stick them up. Hashtag ba, okay? Um, Andrew and Matt are killing themselves here. I think I should have done stand-up, by the way. Um, anyway, we hope, you're doing, we hope you're doing well. It's good to be with you. I've had a fight with the barber over the last week. That's what lockdown is doing to me. Um, but in all seriousness, I know that uh, the last week has been tough for people as we've entered, I can't even remember what it is now, week eight or nine 
of, of lockdown. And uh, I know some of you have gone back to work over the last week and we've been praying for you. I know some of you are business owners who have had to open up uh, your places of work again. And I know that hasn't been easy. So we do want you to know that we're praying for you. And if there's anything that we can do, even if it's just prayer, please do get in touch with us. This week, we're going to be moving on to John chapter 10 and the story of the Good Shepherd. And I hope uh, the words that we share this morning will be applicable. I do feel a sense of um, maybe a word in season for some of us, just in terms of what we're living through at the moment. Um, but by the way, I didn't Bruno just do a great job last week. I really enjoyed and felt challenged and encouraged and blessed by her words. And, and she helped us carry these great themes that we've been looking at through the Gospel of John, through um, this idea uh, fundamentally of the mutual indwelling of the presence of God that Jesus is inviting us into throughout this gospel, the unfathomable almost love of the Father and the Son that Jesus is providing us an invitation into throughout the gospel of John. And the other theme that we see coming through, the river of life that's flowing out of the source of life itself and the new availability to that a river is here, which represents the Spirit of God, and Jesus is telling us it's flowing to all the broken and desolate places. And the idea of truth as a person without an encounter and a revelation of Jesus, who is God incarnate, our lens on the truth will always be distorted. We won't be seeing right, we won't be judging right, we won't be assessing right. No matter how much we know the law, without a knowledge of Jesus, we won't be applying it properly. And, and Bruna took us through that and into that further last week through the story of the blind beggar and how Jesus wants to reveal to us a new way of seeing uh, our own sin and the sin systems of the day have blinded us to what the truth really looks like. And he wants to clean our eyes up and he wants to do that today. And we become even more aware of it, I think, in what we're living through at the moment. We are aware of how we see things through the lens of shame and fear and comparison and criticism and competitiveness and all of those kind of things. And Jesus wants to uh, touch us as we engage with his presence and clean up our eyes so that we can see and discern rightly that we would filter things through the lens of grace and truth. If you can imagine Jesus's sunglasses, Jesus's shades, if you like, that he gives us are branded grace and truth. And we see the word differently when we see the Son, the Son of God, Jesus himself. And um, and so as we come into John chapter 10 this morning, the same theme follows on, which is that true spirituality, true religion, if you like, is based on a knowledge and an encounter and a revelation of the person of Jesus. And, uh, and so if you were to read through the Gospel of John, like we've try, been trying to do, by the time you get to John 10, I find myself coming to like almost like a bit of an oasis because it's like we get a bit of a chance to take a breath and remind ourselves of the one voice that really matters. And Chris has already alluded to this in the introduction this morning. We have so many voices that we've heard in this gospel so far, voices of the disciples, the voice of the Pharisees, the voice of the high priests, maybe the voice of the crowds. We've got an idea of the public and popular opinion that's out there about Jesus, about God, about the law, about spirituality. Uh, and now 
as we come to this point, we get a chance to think about the voice that really matters, the one voice, that gentle, firm voice of our leader, who isn't a threatening judge, who isn't a dictator, who isn't a control freak or a tribal leader that's causing us to set ourselves up against another group of people. What we see is the voice of a gentle shepherd who leads us into a place of rest and a place of sustenance. And uh, this is my hope this morning that we will come to be uh, aware of the voice of the shepherd in gentle and tender ways. As we come to John chapter 10, first of all, it's really important for us to know that this metaphor of the good shepherd that Jesus is using is building on a theme that already exists in the Hebrew Bible throughout the Old Testament. It's interesting that verse 1 tells us that Jesus is actually speaking to the Pharisees at this time. I hadn't actually noticed that before. And it's helpful for us to know that because the Pharisees would know their Bible. They would have known the tradition of the image of God as a shepherd coming throughout the Bible. It's a, it's a series and a sequence that begins in Psalm chapter 23 and um, continues through the life of Jesus and then into the life of the early church. Four major times in the Old Testament, this theme comes across. Yahweh, Rohi, Chris mentioned this as well, the Lord uh, as my shepherd. And then five major times in the New Testament, we see this theme. And so like other images for God in the Old Testament, not unlike the, the theme of the river that we explored a few weeks ago, the shepherd image begins with God, it sharpens its focus in Jesus, and then it's continued on in the early church in the form of Christian leadership and what that should look like as leaders of the church, pastors, shepherds follow in the footsteps of Jesus. So Jesus knew the 23rd Psalm like any good Jew would have. And he knew the theme of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In, in those days, um, the lands that... Uh, the people would have lived in, they would have been familiar, obviously, with the vocation of farming and the kind of landscape that people in those days lived in. And they, they therefore would have been familiar with the idea of sheep roaming the countryside, sometimes exposed to the dangers of that, and um, how that would have been difficult at times in the mountainous terrain that they lived in. And so David, who's writing this psalm, is using the analogy of sheep for our everyday lives, the difficulties and the ups and downs, the times we feel isolated or exposed or coming to an end of ourselves, feeling exhausted. And so he writes these famous words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, he's saying, I don't need any other protection because I have the ultimate guide. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't need any other voices because he and his voice is more than enough. God is going to protect me. God is going to care for me. God is going to ensure that I make it through even the darkest valley. And so it's good to know this because Jesus was speaking uh, at this word about the good shepherd into the mindset of the Jews and the Pharisees. This image of God rescuing his sheep. They would also have been aware of Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34. You can read them yourselves. Two other major passages where God reveals himself as a shepherd, mostly because he's angry, righteously, 
at other leaders who were supposed to represent him who aren't acting as proper shepherds. And actually, God himself says in Ezekiel 34, I myself will search for my sheep and look for them. And so against this backdrop, Jesus begins by saying to the Pharisees, I am the good shepherd. He's essentially saying, guys, I know this 1,000 years of history of your understanding of this concept, and now, today, what you're hearing is, this is being fulfilled. And so some of them think he's demon-possessed. Now, when we look at the passage itself, what Trevor has read, the first 18, 20 verses or so, um, it's split up into three sections, so it might be good for you to have your Bible with you as we go through this today to help it make a little bit more sense. Section one to six, sorry, section one, verses one to six, Jesus is referring to the vocation of a true shepherd, but he's doing it in the third person. He's using it as a figure of speech. And it seems a little bit cryptic to the Pharisees. In verse five, it tells us that they don't really get what Jesus is trying to tell them. And it may be because they just can't comprehend the fact that this young rabbi would claim to be the good shepherd that the Hebrew scriptures have prophesied and spoken about for so many years. The second section then, so Jesus gets a bit more plain and he moves into the first person, verses seven to 10, and he talks about how I am the good shepherd. And in the third section is verses 11 to verse 18, and we're introduced to the hard hand, to the presence of a wolf in the story, and to this shocking reality at the end that the shepherd himself dies. Now, there's loads I could say in this passage, but for time's sake, I want to make three points, one from each section, okay? So hopefully you're with me, and uh, let's just really dive into this this morning, because I feel like there's some stuff for us. Section one, tells us this, and the point they want to make. The shepherd knows his sheep, and his sheep know his voice. Verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. By name. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him, because they know his voice. The shepherd know his sheep, and his sheep know his voice. Now, likely you've heard this before. We've sung these kind of songs. If you're brought up in the church, you've, you've heard that kind of line before. But stick with me because I believe that there's more depth and I feel the Lord wants to bring it alive to us this morning. The, the knowing that we're talking about here, the sheep knowing, his, the, the, sorry, the shepherd knowing his sheep, knowing them by name. In biblical terms here, this idea of knowing is not an intellectual knowing. It's an experiential knowing. It's a deep and intimate knowing. In, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word for know, uh, we, we understand that it's a bit more flat in our English language than the depth of what it was getting at in the Bible. Uh, it says in the Bible that, that Adam knew Eve and they conceived and had a son. Uh, without going into too much detail, that means he knew her right and well, right? It was not just a mild acquaintance. He knew her in a deep and intimate way that produced life. And, uh, and it's that kind of knowledge that God is getting at here, a deep, intimate communion and friendship. And Jesus is saying that his, the shepherd knows. That's what the shepherd longs for, that level of knowing. And Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees understand that this is the way and the kind of relationship that God wants to have with his people. It's beyond simply living up to a holiness code. 
It's a deep and intimate way of knowing one another that uh, the ways of the other get written on each other's hearts. It's the knowledge that the Father has for the Son. It's the way the Son knows the Father that Jesus is now saying to the Pharisees that this is the way God wants to know his people, like a shepherd knows his sheep. It's like a knowledge in the depths and that you resonates with the depths of your soul that it's quite difficult to put into words, to be honest, but you just know. That's the kind of knowledge Jesus is trying to get at here. And why he chooses the analogy of the sheep and the shepherd is because, as I've said, it's a theme throughout um, Hebrew spirituality, but also because the people of the day would have understood this. They would have understood how a, sh- a sheep knows its shepherd. Let me try and explain this, a little bit more background from my extensive knowledge on sheep. Okay, here we go. Um, every, every person in a Jewish, Jewish village in first century Palestine might have had two or three different sheep. It was probably your winter willies, okay, coming for those cold months. Um, but I want you to imagine the same people lived in villages in those days, in small little houses, probably about the size of a one-car garage. And they were almost kind of terraced-ish against each other. And there would have been an alleyway um, down the side of those houses. And so the two or three sheep that each household owned would have been put at the end of the alley into a sheep fold. And um, in the morning time, maybe a young guy or young girl in the village would have been given the job of coming to the end of the alley and giving a call. And the gatekeeper at that point would have opened the sheepfold and the sheep would have all flowed out onto the streets. And the shepherds would have then came and called their own sheep, their own two or three sheep, by name or give a particular shout or maybe a whistle. And as they did that, the sheep recognized the voice of their particular shepherd and they followed that shepherd out of the village into the surrounding countryside to find pasture. Now, I don't think, from what I know, that sheep are the most, uh, the brightest animal in the world. For goodness sake, they just like bah and like eat stuff, right? But they do seem to have an inbuilt, established trust with their shepherd, an almost intuitive way of knowing the voice of the shepherd. And they also seem to have a way of knowing who their shepherd is not. Someone else can come to the sheepfold and the sheep won't go anywhere near them, even if they are called the right names. I don't know if you've ever played that prank on one of your mates growing up where you phoned them and pretended to be somebody else. You said you were such and such. And uh, it's a good game if you're good at changing your voice, isn't it? Because ultimately, whether that joke or that prank is going to stand up for too long or not is based on how good you can mimic the voice of the person you're trying to mimic. And that's a really, really difficult thing to do because the sound of the voice is unique. And in the clamor of a sheepfold where multiple flocks would have been kept together, co-located for safety overnight, the sheep are listening for the one voice in the morning that matters, the voice that they trust in. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, guys, the leaders who don't really know their sheep, and they don't really know the sheep because they don't really love the sheep, because it's that kind of knowing, that, that they're not going to have followers, certainly not for the right reasons at least. Verse 5, they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And the shepherd wants us to know 
today that he knows his sheep. And I just want to remind you of this today. The shepherd, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, he knows you. And he knows you by name. He knows you intimately, different from all the others. He knows you. Then he wants you to hear him call you. He wants you to hear his voice. And he wants you to know that voice. This is the type of intimate relationship that God wants with us. And so I suppose the challenge is for us today is, what voices are we listening to? There's voices of culture, full of uncertainty, fear, self-promotion. There's voices of the enemy, which are accusing, condemning voices. And there's voices of uh, voices within ourselves, or, which are voices of self-criticism and self-condemnation, shame and self-centeredness. You see, if last week Bruno was challenging us about our eyes and whether we're seeing clearly or not, this week in John chapter 10, we're being challenged about our ears and whether we're hearing rightly. What voices are we listening to? And I just really want to emphasize this this morning because I feel it's so important. I feel we're in a key time where we need to strain a little bit more to hear the voice of God. There is so much noise out there. There's notifications popping up on our phone. There's stuff all over social media. We're on Zoom calls and WhatsApps and stuff on TV and news channels and so much opinion. It feels at times like an echo chamber of reverberating voices. And in the midst of that, I know I am desperate to hear the voice of God. Also, we're in such a unique time individually and collectively. We're all living through transitions. And I heard a seasoned Christian leader and mentor say recently that in times of transition, the key factor for navigating transition is voice, voice recognition. If we're going to get through the transition well, we need to think about the voice that we're hearing that's going to guide us into life and life in all its fullness. People are scared. People are uncertain. Maybe you are about the future today. And we need the voice of the Good Shepherd leading, guiding. And I believe that God wants the church to come out of this crisis with a quiet confidence about who they are and whose they are because they have heard the voice of the Good Shepherd who knows where he's going, who knows where he's taking us, who knows where he's leading now, before I move on to the second two points, just a really quick run through. Practical ways that you can hear the voice of God. Okay, this is going to be quick, but hopefully super practical and helpful. If we want to get to know God's voice more, number one, pause. Be still for long enough to hear God's voice. The only way that you can cultivate hearing God's voice is to be still enough to hear it. Allow the other voices to be quietened down. Just even start with five minutes of silence. And listen for the voice of God. Prepare. So pause, but also prepare. Deal with the distractions. Uh, Mark Sayers in Red Church in Australia has this great little kind of maxim where he says to his church, let's win, win the day. And what they mean by that is they practically choose to set their phones in the furthest place away from them in the house as they get ready to read their Bibles. To start the day by hearing the voice of God before everything else that tries to clamor for our attention. Prepare 
for your time with the Lord so that you can learn to hear his voice. A place is important. Number three, uh, that's part of the preparation. A particular chair, a particular time when you go for a walk. Think about somewhere that you can just almost sanctify as your place to hear the voice of God. God will honor that. Four, posture. Soften your heart. Don't come knowing all the answers. If you feel a little bit hard and cynical, allow the Holy Spirit to do a work of softening. Be curious and be humble and be expectant and posture yourself ready for God to speak. Five, pray the Bible. The main way you're going to hear the voice of God is reading God's word. But not just for information. Read and reread it and let it like waves just caress over your soul and allow it to soften your heart so that you can hear the voice of God. And that will also, reading the Bible, help you line up what you think is the voice of God with the truth of who God is. Number six, personal. Remember that God speaks to you in your own unique way. Some of us, God speaks to you quite practically. For some of us, God speaks to us a bit more mysteriously and supernaturally. The reality is we're all different and you learn the way that God speaks to you personally. And sometimes we can miss it for the expectation of a big booming voice when really God is speaking quite naturally to us, more naturally than maybe we realize. Number seven, process. Just process how you think God is speaking. I find it helpful to chart how God is speaking to me over a season of time by keeping a journal by uh, writing down my thoughts and writing out my thoughts and just trying to process what God is doing, just examining my own heart and not becoming over-introspective, but just listening gently to God. And then number eight, presence. Ultimately, processing and trying to hear God's voice is about coming to a place where God's presence and his presence alone is more than enough. I've come to realize that God loves me into my decision-making more than just giving me like a blueprint of the future. I've come to realize that I need less of a word of God than I need to be in union with the word of God. And, um, And prayer and listening to the voice of God becomes a place where I learn to attune myself to his presence, his loving, leading gentle voice speaking his belovedness over me. And those are some eight Ps to help you think about learning to hear the voice of God. And my second two points are going to be quicker because I really feel like I wanted to labor that for a moment or two. In the second section, the second point I want to make is the shepherd is the way to life in all its fullness. Interestingly, in the first scene, the shepherd isn't the gatekeeper But in the second scene, the shepherd is not just the gatekeeper, he is the personification of the gate. What is happening here? And Ken Bailey, the scholar, is really, really helpful in this. In the first scene, we become aware of the shepherd taking the sheep out of the village, where the sheep follow him and they find pasture, like I explained. But if you can imagine, over a number of months, spring, summer months, so much of that uh, surrounding countryside um, the, the grass uh, and the pasture gets eaten up. And so in order to find more, you have to go further out. And that often leads the shepherd and the sheep into more exposed places 
in the open countryside, which may mean staying overnight out there. And so they would have found these caves, first come, first serve probably, where shepherds would have taken their sheep and built a kind of makeshift enclosure and parameters for the sheep to stay within. And there would have been an entrance. And where do you think the shepherds slept at night? The shepherds slept in the entrance, slept across it. He became the gate, the door, the way in and out, prepared to guard and protect the sheep. The shepherd becomes the doorway to life. The sheep go in and out through the shepherd in order to find life. They find life in, in terms, on one side of the coin, not death. They're protected from the thieves who come to steal and kill and destroy. But they're also finding life on the positive side of things, the provision for good pasture that leads to life in all its fullness. Life that's going to nourish their souls, life in its abundance. The shepherd is the gate, the way to life. And he will ensure the sheep have life, no matter what it costs. Which leads me into the third section and point three. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 11, starting this third section of the passage that we've read, tells us, I am the good shepherd, Jesus speaking. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The emphasis here is on the good shepherd. <laughs> Remember what I've said, Jesus has been saying to the Pharisees. I am this shepherd, the one that you've meditated on and reflected on and thought about over the last 1,000 years in your spirituality through the Hebrew Scriptures. I am the good shepherd. The word good here in the Greek is the word kalos, and it could also mean noble, perfect, beautiful, precious, or wonderful. And aren't these all exactly words that describe who Jesus is? Noble, beautiful, precious, wonderful, perfect. We've seen this through this gospel, the way he's fed the 5,000, the way he's turned the water into wine, the way he interacted with the woman at the well, the way he stuck up and defended the woman caught in the act of adultery, the way he's um, championed the poor, Jesus is the, the good, perfect, beautiful, noble, gentle shepherd. And the goodness of this shepherd in this last section is contrasted with the hard hand and the wolf. Let's look at those really briefly. The hard hands probably refers to the corrupt system of the high priesthood that governed the temple in those days. These people didn't really love the people, but rather enforced a system of power and control over the people. They kept the priesthood within their family. They kept it locked in, and they paid off the Romans in order to secure their place of privilege at the top of this hierarchy, and they overcharged and exploited the people who were buying sacrifices off them at the temple. They took advantage of them. Unfortunately, in the church today, there are hard hands. We need, to be, we need to be aware of them. People who love their own platform more 
in their love to sheep. People who want you to send them money, but never really sit at your kitchen table, never wash your feet. Leaders who talk a good game, leaders who parade their, parade their power, leaders who woo you with their charisma, but all they're interested in is really their own career development. We need to beware of hard hands. This is not the way good shepherds lead. Then there was the wolf. The wolf who attacks the sheep probably represented the Roman Empire, a symbol of imperial power, a brutal oppressor who chooses when he wants and whether or not he wants to and attack the sheep to get what they want for greed and selfish reason. At this point, when the wolf attacks, the hard hand runs off because they don't really love and care for the sheep. He cares nothing for the sheep, Jesus says in this passage. And today we may not have the Roman Empire, but we do have empires. Empires that offer us prosperity, that, that, that kind of feed our desire for self-promotion and power, materialism, individualism. But ultimately, these systems let us down. And Jesus challenged both these systems in his time. The priestly system that was corrupt and the Roman system that was built on power and greed. And these were the two powers that Jesus challenged the most and got under their skin. The leaders of both of these systems wanted to kill Jesus. They couldn't handle the truth. And so the leadership of the good shepherd stands in contrast to the leadership of the day in which Jesus lived. And at the core of this good shepherd is nothing self-serving. It's the opposite of these other two systems. It is sheer goodness. And the perfection of this goodness is ultimately displayed in the words of Jesus when he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In case you think that this was like defeat for Jesus, either by the Roman Empire or by the devil himself, you need to look closer at this passage and you need to see that Jesus isn't defeated by any of these powers despite the fact that he wanted, they wanted to kill him. What we see is Jesus laying down his life. Nobody takes it from me. He lays down his life willingly, lovingly, wholeheartedly, freely, because like a lamb led to the slaughter, Jesus cares more about the sheep than he does about himself. He gave himself up like Aslan laying himself down on that table. He allows evil to do its worst in him. So at the cross, we see the worst of mankind in contrast to the goodness and the glory of God displayed for all to see. Jesus is saying to the world and to the Pharisees in this particular passage, this is what God is like. This is the kind of shepherd who will die for his sheep, lay down his own life for them. You see, for the most part, these kind of stories that you'd read, you really kind of expect that if anybody's going to die, it's going to be the poor little defenseless, defenseless sheep. They're the ones that are used on the altar anyway. What use are they? And yet, in this story, it's not the sheep who dies, but it's the shepherd who dies. The shepherd lays down his life 
It's the shepherd who becomes the lamb slain for the sins of the world so that the sheep get to live. He lays down his life so we go free so that we can be known known by him. Even though we've always been known by him, Jesus lays down his life to provide a way that we can experience in a very real and lived way what it is to be known by Jesus. And not just to be known by Jesus, but to be known in the same way that the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. And what Jesus is saying to the, to the Pharisees and what he wants to say to us is that the, the way the Father knows him, he wants to know his sheep, his beloved community, and that we would share in the love of the Father and of the Son. I think this, um, this picture of the Good Shepherd is so, so important for us today. In the early church, you know, as I close, this picture of the Good Shepherd was such a big deal, and we've kind of lost it a little bit today, or else it's become a little bit sentimental and a little bit trite. But the early Christians, you know, up until the third century, this was an important passage for them because the cross was quite a difficult symbol for them because people were still being persecuted, hung and nailed to crosses. And so the thought of worshiping, or sorry, the, the thought of sitting in a church or in a gathering with a cross was quite a difficult thing for them to visualize because family members and people had been literally butchered on these, uh, on these uh, crosses. And it wasn't until, until Constantine in the third century established Christianity as a state religion that a lot of this persecution stopped and the cross was introduced as a symbol of worship. It was difficult. Ken Bailey says it was a little bit like an American looking at, uh, at an electric chair. And, and so up until that time, the image most prominent in the minds of the early church was the picture of a shepherd, of a good shepherd, with a sheep over his shoulder. So much of the art and the icons of those days were a shepherd with a sheep over its shoulder. The early Christians knew this as a strong metaphor because they knew that the only way a lost sheep could get found as if a shepherd went after it. That's the incarnation. And not only went after it, but the process of bringing it back and eventually laying down your life for it, that's the atonement. And in this picture of a good shepherd with a sheep over its shoulders, they had the gospel. This was the gospel for them. That God in Jesus is a good shepherd. His sheep know know his voice. He knows them by name. He is the way that they can go in and out to find abundance of life. And this good shepherd will lay down his life so that they can know him in the most deep and intimate way that you could ever imagine. I think we need the picture of the good shepherd in our mental map and in our spiritual hearts as we think about God and how we need him in these days. And that's my prayer for you today. For us as a church, and for anyone's watching, he is a good shepherd, and he wants to lead you into life. The Lord bless you this morning. And if you would like us to pray for you in any way, please let us know. Please see the phone line down below. Make use of it. People are waiting and ready to pray for you, to speak to you, and to shepherd you into life. And may you know 
the gentle touch of the master today in your lives. God bless you. Have a great day.